and uh, trying to give answers to the questions that uh, many people ask, and not just people outside of the church, but sometimes we struggle with ourselves. And so the question I want to talk about today is, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? Is is it really God's voice? Uh, Is it worthwhile that we get together each week and and talk about the Bible and, and kind of run our, our lives through the Bible and say, are we living in accord? Are we believing in accord? Are we delighting in, in accord to what it says? So we get together in care groups and in ABFs and so forth. Is, is that worth our while or should we be doing other more important things? Is it really God's voice? And if you would follow the latest Gallup uh, polling, uh, data, you would discover that three out of four Americans say no. It is not uh, God's word. It's not his voice. That at best, it's a library of wisdom, perhaps sprinkled with uh, some myths and fables. And yet the Bible itself co- claims that it is God's voice. And here we have this, this uh, com- compilation, this book, uh, despite being written by over 40 authors across 15 centuries contains a single and holy and urgent message for all of mankind. So we're going to look at a variety of scriptures this morning. We're going to talk about what people say in the culture or outside the faith, questions they have, uh, statements and declarations they make, and what the scripture might have to say about it. But let's pray before we dive in. Father, I want to just say thanks so much for what the uh, scriptures have meant to me all these decades and how... Uh, impactful they've been, how, how, how they've encouraged me, how they've reproved me, how they've transformed me. I'm just so grateful that I have a book in my language that conveys to me your voice any moment that I sit down and turn to it. And we're so grateful that across the world there are almost 3,400 language groups that have some or all of the Bible in the language that they speak. And we give you thanks for the thousands scattered across 161 countries who are working on over 2,600 Bible translation projects. We pray that you would enable them, that you would clear their minds, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, that you'd give them understanding above and beyond their own intelligence. And we pray for our next generation, that you would raise up people from the millennial generation and the one coming behind that who would grasp that this is profoundly your voice and that people who don't have access to a Bible in their language need one, that you would multiply translators around the world. We give you thanks that you cared enough for us and about us to reveal yourself to us in such a clear way, not just to the elite spiritual, but from the king to the farmer you have given your word, and that we might understand who you are, what you've done for us. Pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would guide us, give us great understanding, that we'd be just a little bit better equipped when we leave today uh, to answer questions that maybe our children have, maybe our colleagues at work have, our teammates. In Jesus' name, amen. So my three points this morning in this message are statements that my guess is that uh, many of you have heard from others outside of the faith community. The first one is that the Bible is the voice, nothing more than the voice of the winning faction. 
The Bible is the voice of the winning faction, meaning there were many factions in the early Christian, uh, the early church uh, among Christianity, and that this collection of books, we're talking mostly about the New Testament this morning, this collection of books ended up being our Bible simply because a particular faction won out over another. And so, for example, we have... um, we have Gnostics and we have the Marcionites and the Aryan people in the early church. And it could have been one of them that would have won out and we would have a different Bible today. And so look at it this way. Back in 2016 and the election, the Republicans won. They won everything. They won the White House, House of Representatives, and the Senate. And so they might have gotten together in a room and everybody decided, all right, we've got all the power right now, so let's put together a book that lays out what we believe and, and, and what we stand for and why we believe we should have the policy, policies that we want, and then we'll try to get, convert everybody to our way of thinking. Well, if they would have tried that, there would have been some Democrats upset, some Libertarians upset, some Independents. A lot of people would have said, hmm, I, that may be good for you, but we're not, we're not ready to buy in. And so there are people who look at the early days of Christianity when the Bible was formed and say, well, we've got these 27 books of the New Testament because certain people won. Their group overpowered the rest of the group and those folks got weeded out. So if you look at, just to touch on the Old Testament briefly, are you aware that during the 1,000 years that the Old Testament was being accepted by the people of God, formed and accepted by the people of God, that there were other books written that were rejected. And you can find actually uh, almost a couple dozen of them referenced in the Old Testament, but not included in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Jasher, uh, the book of the Wars of the Lord, um, book of Edo, uh, book of Nathan the prophet. There's a about 20 or so, depending how you categorize them, that are mentioned in the Old Testament, but are not part of the Old Testament. And the same is true in the New Testament. For example, there's a book, uh, a letter that Paul wrote to Laodicea. It's mentioned at the end of Colossians. It's not included in the New Testament. There's another letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, mentioned in 1 Corinthians, not included in 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 the New Testament. In fact, some scholars think there was a second. There were actually a total of four letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, only two of them included in the New Testament. And then in addition to those kinds of books written by people who were writing New Testament books or letters, there's a whole collection of books and letters that were being written in the first and the second and the third centuries that today are being uh, examined by scholars and and scholars who are not Christians are saying, well, why weren't they included? The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. Um, Some others that are out there are the Acts of Peter, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas. And people saying, well, why weren't those books included in the New Testament rather than some we have? And had certain other factions want one out, that probably would have been the case. So for example, a guy by the name of Marcion, he had a very tiny New Testament. He would have included 10 books written by Paul, part of the book of Luke, and just a couple of other pieces, and that would have been it, a much smaller New Testament. Arian, same way. And so again, there's a, it's a legitimate question to ask by scholars and historians 
especially those who aren't, don't have really uh, any interest in Christianity. And we would, it's fair to ask the question, why did the church, dis, I'm going to use this word this morning, discriminate? Why did the church discriminate, early church, about certain books, certain letters, include some and not include others? I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, <clears throat> verses 18 and 19. And Paul says this, first I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. And here's the important statement. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Paul understands that in any given church, there are going to be people who disagree with each other. There are going to be people who live in accordance with God's will and those who don't. And this is the reason that we encourage people in the body of Christ to, to challenge each other when we're straying outside of the Lord's will, when we are believing things that are not true. There are always going to be people in any given church as well as the wider sweep of the church who are in sync with God's will and those who are not in sync with God's will. Interesting, verse 19 again. The word that in the NLT is translated division in the old King James Bible was translated heresies. Now, if you have an ESV or some other uh, more literal translation, it probably says factions. And so there's this idea that there are splinter groups within, potentially within any given church who believe aberrant things, who live in aberrant ways, and Paul says that they're, they're going to be obvious. So there's, there's going to be division. Let me just go down a rabbit trail for a second. And you've probably heard unbelievers say, I can't understand if Christianity is true, why are there 43,000, that's the last number I heard, 43,000 different denominations that call themselves Christian. And their implication is, by virtue of all this different, different, uh, differentiation, that it must not be legit. It must, Christianity must not be true. Otherwise, you would all be together. There would be this one Catholic church. Catholic simply means universal. And you would all be in harmony. There wouldn't be any Baptists. There wouldn't be any Methodists. There wouldn't be any Mennonites. There wouldn't be any Presbyterians. You'd just be Christians. This is a reminder that thanks to the sinfulness of the human heart, there's always going to be dispute and there's always going to be differences and we shouldn't assume that that means it's not true. We should assume that means there are always sinners and we are we're part of that. So there is a need to discriminate between God's voice and man's voice. And the discrimination criteria is found in 2 Timothy uh, well, this isn't a criteria, but let me just have you look at these two passages quick. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says that all Scripture is inspired or God-breathed, depending on your text. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. This reminds us of the urgency of knowing what God's scripture are because once we know that, we have to live by it. We have to believe by it. We have to understand in accordance with scripture. 
Peter gives uh, even, even more clarity about what happened in the inspiration process, 2 Peter chapter 1. There are books that are written that have God's fingerprint on, uh, fingerprints on, and then there are books that are written that don't. 2 Peter 1 verse 20, above all you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God, or they were carried by the Holy Spirit, I think the NIV says, and they spoke from God. In other words, we have letters that would have been written in the New Testament day that had God, God's fingerprints on because they were written in accordance with Holy Spirit that carried along those writers. And then we have other letters and other books that were not written with that, those fingerprints of God. And of course, Peter is a very Jewish, and so he's thinking here about prophets because those were the guys that wrote most of the Old Testament, New Testament written by the apostles. But his point is that these are designated, called out, singled out people by God to write the letters and the books that God wanted to, to convey his message to uh, the people with. And as we look back and see the books that were written, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see, as scholars have kind of parsed out, withdrawn the, uh, the measurement by which people determined whether or not these had, uh, this book or that book had God's fingerprints on. Uh, if you have the uh, sermon notes, this is all jotted down for you uh, on there, I think. First of all, is it prophetic? Is it prophetic? In other words, was it written by either a prophet or apostle or a close associate with them? Uh, with one of them. So, for example, most of the New Testament is written by apostles, but not Mark, not Luke, not Acts. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was a close associate of Peter. And so most of what's in Mark were recollections of Peter and his eyewitness observations of Jesus and his ministry. Luke, close, uh, close associate of the apostle Paul. However, Paul wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus and his ministry primarily. And so, uh, Luke says at the beginning of his gospel that he did a thorough research interviewing eyewitnesses and so forth to, to tell them truth about what God, uh, Jesus did and said when he was here on earth. So is it prophetic? Uh, did it have a prophet or apostle or close associate as the author? Secondly, is it authoritative? In other words, is there something in the book or letter itself that makes the claim for thus saith the Lord? God has revealed this message to me. I'm communicating to you what he uh, told me to share. Third, is it authentic? And so the, uh, the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. For the first 20 years or so, maybe we could say 30 or 40, uh, because the, no New Testament documents had been widely distributed at that point. For the first three, four decades, the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. And they would look at a book, a book or letter like James or like a First Corinthians and they would say, okay, does this reflect the truth about God and his plan in the Old Testament? In other words, we're looking, for, we're looking back to what has been accepted by the people of God as God's word and say, does it line up with the truth that's already been revealed to us from God? Is it authentic? And lastly, is it dynamic? In other words, have we seen evidence that it changes people's lives? Is, is it uh, life-changing? 
So these are the four main, we talk about these as tests of canonicity. Why this book should be included in the canon, uh, the standard of the New Testament or the standard of the Old Testament, or why it should be rejected. Now, if you, how many of you read the book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, a dozen years ago or so? Uh, people go, I don't want to admit to that. <clears throat> Dan Brown uh, grew up in a Christian home. He, was, he became a skeptic, though. And Dan Brown believes that the, the group that won out in early Christianity had a, had a bone to pick with women. They didn't like women. And so the, the, the early church squashed uh, like the Gospel of Mary or the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which were not included in the New Testament, but were books that especially, uh, maybe I could say, came from a kind of a feminist point of view. And uh, Br Brown and, and his cohorts say what really happened is in 397 AD, a group of men who didn't like women especially, got together at the Council of Carthage and they voted certain books in in the New Testament and voted the rest out. And so if you can imagine a group of good old boys, uh, 30 or so, get it together in a room and uh, somebody's running the show and they say, all right, how many are in favor of including 1 Corinthians in the New Testament? All raise your hand. Okay, I see one, two, three. How many we need for a majority? Okay, nine, four, five. Is that your hand up, sir? No, okay, five, six, it, it's like that. We voted the books into the New Testament. Not true. Not true at all. In fact, what happened at 397 at the Council of Carthage, as well as four years earlier, there was a, uh, an earlier council as well, was that they affirmed the books that had already been recognized by virtually all of the Western church and most of the Eastern church. And the reason that they did this was because there were some her heretics in the early church who were, who, who were forming a, a different canon. They were putting together a different New Testament than the one that was already recognized by the church, the early church. One that had been accepted not by leaders of the church, but by the church across the board, the people of God. And they wanted to make sure that the people of God were not led astray by some newcomer saying, oh, we should have these books in the New Testament. Are you tracking me, with me? So the argument that this council decided on the New Testament is just, it's just not a true reading of history. And we actually have notes from the council uh, so we can know what, what went on there and so forth. So confirmation what the church already recognized. All right, that's the first, that's the response to the first question about how did the New Testament get put together? Uh, the second statement is, and you've probably heard this one many times, the Bible is full of contradictions. Just curious, how many of you have heard that from unbelievers? Bible is full of contradictions. So here's what you need to do when somebody tells you that. And you do it with a gentle spirit, kind heart, and concern for their soul. Because they need the message of the Bible. So snarkiness does not serve the Lord's purposes. You ask them this question, would you give me an example of maybe the one contradiction that troubles you the most? And 90% of the people are going to say, well, uh, uh, well, um, uh, well I'm, I, I'm really uh, not sure. Why? Because this has been passed along in the, uh, in the atmosphere of people breathe 
hearing from skeptics over and over. The Bible is full of contradictions, but most people have never looked into it for themselves. Now, I'll be the first to say the Bible has apparent contradictions, especially when we compare gospel accounts. We have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are in, in some cases describing the exact same events as the other gospel writers. And so we can look and say, ooh, there's some things that are different in this account versus this account. And so we're going to acknowledge that. We don't want to say that there, it doesn't look like um, there are any contradictions because it does. So let me give you some examples of a couple of contradictions that I found on key, uh, uh, key examples on skeptics' websites. First one is Judas. So if I were to ask you how Judas died, what would you say? Judas hung himself. How many would say Judas hung himself? Put up your hands. How many would have a different answer? A couple. Hmm. Why is that? Because when we read in the book of Matthew, it says Judas went out, hung himself, 27 verse 5. But when we get over to Acts chapter 1, listen to what it says. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. It's a, it's a parenthetical statement because they're talking about uh, replacing uh, Judas's position as, a, as an apostle. And so it describes what happened to Judas. Verse 18, Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. Sorry, it's kind of gross. Like, wait a minute. Did he hang himself? Or did he fall off a cliff and explode? Now, what I'm about to do is sometimes called harmonizing. And when we look at the different gospel accounts, we can look at them and say, you know what? This guy uh, or this eyewitness saw these things from this vantage point, but this eyewitness saw things from this vantage point and saw a few different things than this eyewitness did. What if, what if the field that Judas bought with the money that he got for betraying Jesus had at the end of the field a small hill that was fairly steep? And on that hill was a tree. Now, you know, if you guys are hunters and you're walking up the mountain when you're hunting and you've got your gear on and it's kind of hard uh, and you're trying to find a, if you don't have a tree stand, you're trying to find a nice tree to sit under, uh, preferably a hemlock. And you know that you, if you sit at the base of that tree, it's a bit of a problem. Why? because the mountain's sloping down from the tree and it's tough to stay put. You kind of keep sliding down. Now, the, so the hill's like this, but the tree grows like this. If Judas would have found a tree on that hill, he could have wrapped a rope around a limb on that tree, dragged it back up the hill a little bit, wrapped it around his net, tied it good and tight, and then kind of run down the hill and all of a sudden, where that rope came down straight, his feet are off the ground this far. You following me? Now, what if that tree was not real strong? And after about eight hours of Judas hanging there, the limb snapped, dead weight. Now, we're in the Middle East, the hot Jerusalem sun. Um, this is going to be a little gross. So when a person dies, 
Body swells up with gases, right? Body falls. Or maybe a, someone finds him 12 hours after the fact and they try to cut him down, slips out of his grasp, again, dead weight. Do you see this is at least one possible explanation to reconcile two what appear to be contradictory accounts? But maybe not. Maybe it's really not contradictory. Example of what we call harmonization. Let me give you an exa another example. Uh, a Roman centurion has a servant who is dying. One account in Matthew, uh, one account in Luke, I think it's Matthew 8 and uh, Luke chapter 5. Or seven. The account in Matthew says that the centurion came to Jesus and asked him uh, to heal his servant. The account in Luke says that instead of him coming to Jesus, the centurion actually sent a number of Jewish elders to ask Jesus to heal his servant. And so critics say, which is it? Now here's where we have a massive problem typically because when you and I um, if we're doing something in our business or we're dealing with a sensitive family subject or if we're dealing with something here in the church we send emails to people and then we forward those emails to other people because then we know the exact message that we receive will be received by, by everyone else understood in exactly the same way right we have that luxury. And in our culture and in our day, we want that kind of precision. We need that kind of precision. But when we read back to ancient documents, ancient people did not have the concern about precision that you and I have. What they had concern about was accuracy. And in, in Matthew and Luke's minds, they would not have they would not have compared their accounts and been troubled by that at all. Because you have to understand, the gospel writers especially, had, um, they had some fundamental intents underlying what they wrote. In other words, they were interested in recounting what happened, but they are also interested in recounting the significance of what happened. So, Matthew wrote his gospel primarily for Jewish people. Luke was the only Gentile writer of any New Testament book. And he had a great interest in conveying to his Gentile audience some very important things about both Jesus' interest in Gentiles as well as Jesus', uh, Jesus interest in bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And so here's Matthew speaking to a Jewish, primarily Jewish audience and he has this Gentile soldier have the audacity to come to this Jewish healer, this Jewish Messiah and ask him to help him and Jesus says he will. And furthermore, Jesus makes the declaration, I have not seen the kind of faith that I see in this Gentile in all of Israel. So we sometimes demand the kind of precision about minutia in the New Testament that the ancient writers simply were not concerned about. Accuracy, yes. But they were also interested not in just telling the story, but telling the implications of the story. Now, let me make one final comment about these. I'm convinced that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the fact that they have some uh, accounts that dif differ in details from one another is actually a testimony to the integrity 
of these accounts. Why? If the winning faction in the early church wanted to set forth a particular point and make sure that, that their way looked pristine and they looked like they were honorable and upright, they would have gotten Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the same room and said, all right, guys, let's get our story straight, right? Instead, they put four gospel accounts together in the book that they believe was inspired by God and said, we're gonna let them stand or fall on their own merits because this is what the eyewitnesses said. Matthew was an eyewitness, John was an eyewitness, Mark wrote down things that Peter said and he was an eyewitness and Luke had a multitude of sources. We're gonna let these things stand because we believe that God inspired these things. We believe that these, these takes or vantage points of these witnesses are valid. They're not contradictory and we're gonna let them stand. To me, the contradictions are only apparent. They're not actually there. Bible's full of contradictions. Mm, not convinced of that. And it's interesting, many, many Christians down th through the past 2,000 years of history have read those apparent contradictions and come away saying, no, I don't think that's the case. I think that these are trustworthy. Last statement that some skeptics might say. The Bible has been corrupted over time. In other words, what you and I read in our New Living Translation Bible is not what the early church in, say, 300 AD would have been reading. <clears throat> this is what the Muslims say. By the way, the Quran does not say that, but many Muslims will say that and are being taught that, that, that the Quran says that. Many skeptics say this. Bart Ehrman is one of the premier skeptics of our day. He has uh, been uh, well published. He, he has the abilities, uh, ability that not a lot of scholars have to get difficult, confusing, um, lofty ideas down on the bottom shelf for people to read and so he's gained a lot of hearing because of that. He's a good debater. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, he has... <clears throat> He grew, he grew up, uh, came to Christ as a teenager, went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton College, and then went to Princeton University and somewhere along the way uh, abandoned his faith and says that he is an agnostic now. And uh, he, if you listen to him in a debate, he, he, it sounds to me like he has a chip on his shoulder. It's not just that he's followed where the scholarship has led him. And he likes to point out that nobody has an original copy of the book of Philippians, for example. Nobody has the original copy of the book of Mark. Nobody has any of the original writings of the New Testament. And he's right, no disagreement. He'll go on to say, we don't even have copies of those originals. And he's right. We don't even have copies of the copies. We don't have copies of the copies of the copies of the copies. No disagreement. And he says, if you compare the copies that we do have, from later in history, there are over 400,000 dis, uh, disputed words, spellings, lines, and so forth. And he's right. No argument there. Now, let me respond to that. So the earliest documentation that we have of any New Testament book is from about uh, 30 years after the completion of the New Testament. And it's just a tiny little piece of John. But it, 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 
It falls in about 130 AD, and the New Testament was wrapped up by 100 AD. But we do have pieces after that, and we've, by the time we get to about 325 AD, so about 300 years after the time of Christ, we have a complete New Testament, complete. And we have about 5,800 manuscripts that were written in Greek, which is a uh, language that, they, that the New Testament was written in, so those are more valuable than any others as well. 5,800 or so that we can compare copies from Alexandria, Egypt, copies from Constantinople, from all over the Christian world. We have another about 10,000 copies of New Testament portions or all the New Testament that were written in Latin, the next language after Greek. And then we have another almost 10,000 copies. So about 25,000 copies of all or parts of the New Testament from down through history. Now what's interesting is most people that are critical about the copy data regarding the Bible are not that critical about other ancient documents. So for example, uh, the uh, Homer's Iliad, which was written about the 8th century B.C., and people accept the copies that we have of them as valid. The closest copy to the original writing, 2,000 years down the road. Closest copy, and yet people accept that as authentic and an accurate representation of what Homer wrote. And we only have 648 copies of the Iliad in total, compared to 25,000 copies of some portion or all of the New Testament. When we go to something like Herodotus' um, history, and Herodotus was the very first historian. He wrote a history of the Greek and Persian Wars. First guy uh, to ever write and record history in a booklet form. He wrote this again about the, uh, about the fifth century BC. And we have nine complete, I say complete loosely, complete copies of that from about 1,300 years after he wrote that. And nobody disputes that he wrote accurately his book called The Histories. We just accept it, that despite the fact that there's so many hundreds of years between the original writing and these copies. And yet, and yet we have only 300 years between the completion of the New Testament and, and early copies. And then when we compare all these different variants from one copy to the next, it might be a misspelling here, it might be uh, a word substituted here or a word omitted in this manuscript compared to this manuscript. When you get all of those variants under the microscope, even Bart Ehrman admits, not a single one of them affects any major doctrine in Christianity, not a one. You say, well, why are there so many differences in the copies? Because the Bible seems to emphasize that the inspiration only applied to the original writer and not the transmission. And yet I believe that God oversaw the transmission of the text down through the ages so that scholars now who study those manuscripts and compare them say, we, we should be confident that we have a Bible today that is 99.8 or 0.9% accurate to what the New Testament Christians would have been reading as well. Now let me make one last statement about this. When an Old Testament scribe would have been copying the, uh, let's say the book of Isaiah, 
it was such a sacred duty to him. Let's say that he was in Isaiah 65 and he had one more chapter to go. And this would have been, a, this would have been an endeavor that would have taken months, if not years. And all of a sudden, his pen went like this instead of like this. Now, you and I would get white out or the eraser out, whatever's necessary, and keep going. To the Old Testament scribe, that was such a sacred duty, and he had messed it up, he would burn that, he would burn that papyrus or whatever, or calfskin that was written on, and he'd start over. And we, and we see the evidence of this. In 1947, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls over in Israel, and we found copies of the Old Testament books, a copy of every Old Testament book except Esther, that was written about 200 B.C., before Christ. And prior to the discovery of those scrolls, the oldest copy of any Old Testament book that we had was from about 1000 AD. So overnight, we have access to copies that now are 1,200 years older than we had before. And you know what we found? That what was written in 200 BC was almost identical to what had been written 1000 AD. Why? Because that's what the scribes did. In the same way, the early church, while the copies were not written by scribes usually, in fact, uh, scholars say they're less confident of the accuracy of the work of scribes than they are the common ordinary Christian. But these Christians were living and dying for the things that they read in the New Testament. And they knew that their brothers and sisters in other parts of the Roman Empire needed to hear these words of encouragement and hope and truth. And so they, they got them out as quickly as they could, but they did them as accurately as they could do it, knowing that they needed the accuracy and not just the urgency. And so in the early church, we have New Testament letters and books that are being written and distributed. No emails, no copies, no copiers. And so they are read and they're read and they are preached and they are copied. And then they're sent elsewhere. And then they're read and they're preached and copied and sent elsewhere. People, again, living and dying for what they read there. And people to this day living and dying for what they read there. The best attestation to the, to the truthfulness of the New Testament is that across the centuries, Christians have been willing to lay down their lives, literally, to go to the stake, to go to the sword, to go to the cross, for what was told them in these books. Over a, and over two billion people today believe the truth of John 5.39, that the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation point to a single person, Jesus, the Redeemer, and that he is, God is in Christ rescuing a people for himself through Israel's Messiah. No wonder that God's enemies try to disturb our confidence in God's voice. No wonder they try to inoculate unbelievers against its freedom-giving message. No wonder they want to convince your children that they cannot be confident in this book. Years ago, I bet everything that I am and everything that I do and have on the conviction that this book is true. That every word, every jot, every tittle in it. Because it's, it's the only way to know Jesus. It's, it, it lets 
that lets us see that it is trustworthy, that it does stand up to textual criticism, that it will lead us to know, and it will lead our friends to know the one true and living God through Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the going forth of your truth, your scriptures, that our confidence in it might be full and rich uh, not in a cocky sort of way, but in a, an urgent way that we might share things with our children and share things with our colleagues at work and, and with our classmates and with our cousins and our parents. That this is the testimony of Jesus, the true and living God sent down from heaven to redeem a people for you. Fill us with great confidence. And Lord, I pray that it would not be that we just believe that this book is true, but that we would devour it like the Apostle John was told by the angel to, to eat it, to fill our souls and beings with it, to memorize it, to read it, to love it, to cherish it, to teach it to our children and teach it to one another so that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ might be fuller and richer and more secure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.